Amen, and good morning to you. If you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and meet me in Acts chapter 15. We're going to continue our time journeying through the book of Acts together. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1, Acts 15, verse 1. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. It is a joy to be able to worship uh, with you today. And uh, if you are new, I would love the opportunity to say hello to you or get to know you a little bit. And I'd encourage you after service to um, just come up and say hi and let me know who you are. Uh, I'd love to get to know you a little bit more. Um, just a reminder, we do have our uh, celebration, as Pastor Scott said earlier today. Um, th- this afternoon, we will be celebrating us paying off our mortgage, the 2020 vision. Uh, this is a huge accomplishment in the church uh, at FAC, absolutely. And um, we look forward to celebrating. We want to celebrate with you. And so I would encourage you to stick around after service. We're going to give you um, free food. And uh, if that wasn't enough to get you to stick around, uh, I've been told that they're going to give me a blowtorch. Um, and so if anything, stick around to watch me handle fire. Um, it might keep some of you away. Anyway. Uh, this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different uh, from our, our typical pattern is that I just read the whole passage on the front end. Uh, but this morning, I actually want to take this in two different chunks. And so I'll read verses one through six uh, first, and then I'll pray and we'll begin and we'll study that section and then we'll go verses seven through 12. And so let's take a look at what God would have to say to us today, starting in verse one of Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and Uh, brought great joy to all of the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we uh, recognize that the work that we will put into studying your word this morning is a spiritual work. And we know that on our own, we are not capable of producing fruit in spiritual work. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would move and engage our minds so that our hearts may be transformed according to your will and according to your purposes. In your precious son, Jesus' name, we pray all of this. Amen. A couple of weeks back, I had the opportunity to attend our district conference through our denomination. And one of the guest speakers used an illustration uh, where he made mention of sports in America right now. Uh, how sports in America in in the midst of a pandemic have changed. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was something to the effect that you can play a game with no fans, but you cannot play a game uh, without goal lines. You can play a game without fans, but you can't play without goal lines. And um, it got me thinking about how in sports, there are always boundaries, right? 
There are always goal lines. There's always a field of play. There is always a rule book uh, on what's permitted and what isn't. And this reminded me of a childhood memory. I don't know why my mind went here, but when I, when I was younger in my neighborhood, there was about 10 to 15 boys uh, that were all the same age. And uh, we would gather regularly to play all sorts of games outside. Now, we were quite a ragtag group. If you've ever seen the movie Sandlot, that was us, right? A bunch of kids that were up to no good. Um, one particular summer, I remember that we actually invented a game that we would play regularly, and it involved a football. And I don't remember much about it, but what I do remember is every single time we gathered to play the game, we seemed to be making it up as we went. We were always making up new rules to this game. We were always changing the boundaries. And typically, the catalyst for these new rules was some kind of problem that was presented. Some kid would raise his hand and some objection was raised. He'd say, hey, wait a minute, uh, this isn't fair. Or this isn't correct. or We're doing this all wrong. And so we got to change the rules. Even on a broader scale, the, the sports that we watch today on TV have gone through several iterations of their rule books. And in all reality, the games that we have watched or do watch today are much different than they were when they were birthed. All because somebody raises their hand and says, wait a minute, shouldn't we consider playing this way? Shouldn't we consider changing the goal? Shouldn't we uh, change the boundary lines? And this isn't limited to just sports. This expands to all organizations, uh, even communities of faith, even religion. The, The complication of this is, yes, we need boundaries. Yes, we need goalposts, and you can't play without those. But how do we determine what's in the field of play? How do we determine what a goal looks like in Christianity? And most importantly, who determines what the field of play looks like? As we've traveled through Acts together this year, we have seen a very young church developing. Right, And a very young church with a young faith laboring to determine the answers to those hard questions. They're still kind of feeling out what the goal lines look like in a sense. And here in Acts 15, we have a pivotal passage where we discover not only what the goal lines look like, but who determines them. This passage recounts what's known as the Jerusalem Council. And the outcome of this council really serves as a watershed moment in the book of Acts. And not only in the book of Acts, but in all Christianity. Uh, The events that happen here in Acts 15 really justify everything that's been happening. How how the gospel has expanded out into the Gentile world or the non-Jewish world. It justifies all of that. But what this moment, what the Jerusalem Council also does is makes further expansion into the world intrinsically possible. And it all starts seemingly by chance as Paul and Barnabas come across some believers in Antioch that are teaching some questionable things, and a problem is presented. In verse 1, we read that these men came down from Judea. 
to help you understand the geography of all of this, Judea is the region where Jerusalem is located. And Jerusalem was the main hub of Judaism. And so Jerusalem, most people in Jerusalem who lived in Jerusalem were Jewish. These men, however, it says that they came down from Judea. They actually traveled north to Antioch. The reason why it says they came down from Judea is because Judea is a mountainous region. The men came down from Judea is not speaking directionally, but actually topographically. It's they were coming down from a higher elevation. It's the same reason why we call the southern part of Peach Street Upper Peach. When I moved here seven years ago, it took me months to figure out why in the world do we call the southern part of Peach Street Upper Peach? And one of my freshman students actually explained, well, it's a higher elevation, so it's upper. Same thing here. These men come down from a region, and they're coming down from a region that is heavily influenced by Judaism. And they begin teaching that you have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses to be saved. In other words, they claim that if you want to be a Christian, you actually have to become Jewish first. You have to be Jewish first, and then you can take advantage of the salvation that Christ has won for you. Now, of course, in verse two, we find that this does not sit well for Paul and Barnabas. Paul is never one to back down from a fight. And I love what it says here in verse two. It says that, that they had no small dissension and debate with them. This is a very polite way of saying that an all out intense heated verbal argument broke out. The word dissension means that there was a division so great and that, that opinions ran very, very deep on this issue. And we have all seen what that looks like. Perhaps if you've watched debates recently on TV for some high-profile election coming up, you, you see what these kind of deep-seated opinions, uh, how they result in debate and what those debates actually look like. And for Paul, like many of our opinions, this runs personal for him. Right? Yes, there's theological truth to this. Yes, Paul is keeping to the sanctity of Jesus' teaching, but think about the personal ramifications for Paul. This debate comes on the tail of Paul's first missionary journey that we've just walked through the last month or so. Paul, Paul is probably saying, look, look, you guys, I have just traveled probably 1,500 miles in the last year And I have been left for dead preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And you guys think that you can just stroll in here and add to that message? You think that you can just add conditions, that you can make salvation conditional like that? No, I don't think so. The gloves are off. We're throwing down, right? This was a serious altercation. And you'll notice in verse two that it actually wasn't resolved. There is no resolution. And this is probably one of those marathon arguments. You know the ones that I'm talking about that you've probably been involved with. The disagreements that just go on and on. And after about a half hour or an hour, you realize that you're just arguing in circles and this isn't accomplishing anything. Then nothing is getting done. For Paul and Barnabas, 
we recognized that there was no resolution and that this is actually fairly serious because this prompts additional action to be taken. We read that Paul and Barnabas, probably having not been satisfied with the end of that debate, uh, travel with some other men from the church in Antioch to, to Jerusalem. You can imagine during the initial debate that Paul and Barnabas probably got the impression that there was some kind of source to this false teaching in Jerusalem. That these guys heard it from somebody else in Jerusalem. And so we get the sense that Paul travels to Jerusalem so that he can find the source of false teaching and cut it off at the root. And so they, they travel south to Jerusalem. And it actually talks about how they bear testimony to other churches as they go about how they've uh, preached to the Gentiles. <laughs> they're like bragging that they've preached to the Gentiles. It's almost like they're rubbing it in their noses that they've uh, preached to the Gentiles without this kind of condition on it. And, and they get down to Jerusalem finally, and it seems like everybody is thrilled as they report uh, about such uh, good news going out to the Gentiles. But sure enough, in verse 5, we do come across uh, a group of people that have different thoughts on the matter. Right? We come across believers, and it says that they belong to the Pharisee party, the party of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a, a sect of Judaism, who held a very, very strict uh, adherence to the law of Moses. Paul was actually a Pharisee. And so he knows exactly where these guys are coming from. And uh, he understands what they're going through. And so what these guys are, we, we, we have this group of guys who were Pharisees in Judaism, right? They, they strictly followed the law of Moses. They come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior that they've been waiting for, but they haven't quite yet abandoned their, their love and their allegiance to the law of Moses. This is evident in verse 5, because they say it was necessary that they are circumcised. In other words, it's God's will that the Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That's a fairly bold statement, right? To say that, hey, this is God's will. What they're trying to do is change the boundaries, right? They're they're raising their hand and saying, wait a minute, I think we should change the goalposts here. I think we should redefine what a goal in the Christian community looks like. And frankly, if we put ourselves in their shoes for a moment, we can maybe have some empathy and see that this is somewhat a legitimate legitimate question raised. Because all these Jewish people have ever known was the old covenant. All they've ever known was the sign of the old covenant being circumcision. Circumcision, simply put, is a surgical procedure that creates a physical particular mark on the human body. But in Judaism, it means so much more. In Judaism, it was the mark of the covenant. It was the mark of this relationship between God and his people. I want to take a look at um, Genesis 17. Back in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Basically, it's this agreement that you will be my people uh, and I will be your God. And in Genesis 17, this is what he instructs Abraham, who's the father of uh, Judaism. This is what he tells him. 
God says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male you shall be, uh, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. See, in the old covenant God that God makes with Abraham, circumcision functions as this sign. Right, so that the whole world, all of the nations would know that these are God's people. God wanted the world to know, hey, this one's mine. These people are mine, and I'm going to mark them to show that. Through this ritual practice, the Jews became a marked people belonging to God. And so these believers from the Pharisee party are just really struggling to understand how the new covenant of grace through Jesus Christ actually replaces the old covenant of the law. What these Pharisees are saying, these Christian Pharisees are saying is, hey, if you want to belong to God, you have to be marked. You have to be marked to belong to God. And even this promise to Abraham, this passage allows foreigners to be marked. The, the promise that God makes to Abraham uh, made provision for the foreign community to come in and join God's covenantal community. And so what's the problem here? What, why is this any different? Why shouldn't they have to be circumcised to reach or attain salvation? And so it's important to, to, for us to know what battle is being fought here. The debate is not whether Gentiles should be included into this new community of faith. That debate was already settled earlier in Acts. And God's answer to it was unequivocally, yes, Gentiles should be included. But that's not the debate here. No, the debate here is actually by what conditions should they be included in God's new community? By, by what uh, standards should they be included? On what basis should they enter this community of faith? And the believers who are passionately holding on to Jewish customs say that it is necessary for them to be circumcised and they order them to keep the law of Moses. That's the charge. That's the presenting case. It's, it's the case brought before the leaders. And so, of course, in verse 6, the leaders of the Christian community come uh, together to discuss the case presented. And what we see here in the rest of this section of Scripture is actually evidence against that charge. It's a defense, if you will. It's a defense of the Gentiles that they don't need to go through this ritual in order to be part of this saving faith through Jesus, through this, this community. Um, what we see in this passage is the defense really sharing two exhibits. Right? If you were in the court of law, 
The next two sections of the passage would serve as exhibit A and exhibit B. This is, this is what we're going to work through in the next couple of weeks. We only have time for exhibit A this morning, uh, but we're, we're going to take a look at exhibit B next week. Uh, let, let's took it, take a look at exhibit A verses 7 through 12. Uh, go ahead and follow along as I read. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. If I could um, give a name for this defense, Exhibit A. Exhibit A is God's activity. God's activity. It's what God has already done. The leaders have a great and lively debate for some time about this issue. And then Peter's voice rises to the top. And and I think Peter's voice rises to the top because he has an interesting perspective. Uh, He has credibility, if you will, on this manner. And he reminds everybody about it. Uh, He almost sounds arrogant, but he gets his point across. He basically says, hey, you, you know, everybody, you remember how this has played out in the past. You know, the early days of our faith, that God chose me (laughs) out of all of us to be the mouthpiece to the Gentiles. God chose me to initially share the gospel with the Gentiles in those early days of our faith. Peter's actually referring to the story back in Acts chapter 10, uh, where he was called to share the gospel with Cornelius and Cornelius, his friends, and his family. This is probably 10 years past at this point between these five uh, chapters, and and Peter reminds them about Cornelius. And if you recall, when we studied that, Peter really struggled with going into Cornelius' house because Cornelius was a Gentile. And as a Jew, Peter knew that he wasn't allowed to sit down and eat with Gentiles in their homes. And so he really, really struggled with this, but God gave him a vision that basically told him that, hey, this is okay to sit down and eat with them. This is okay that you interact and correlate them. What's important to note is that God took the initiative to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It's not as if Peter sat down with a whiteboard and sketched out a strategy to reach them. No, God initiated it. God told Peter that not only are you to go, but you go with my blessing. Peter goes. And then he goes into more detail in verse eight, almost as a side statement, uh, Peter mentions that God knows the heart, right? God commanded me to go to be the mouthpiece. He chose me. He initiated me And, and, and God who knows the heart. We shouldn't just gloss over this because that's a very important development in this argument that God knows the heart. 
And not only does God know the heart, but that's actually what he's specifically looking at. He's not looking at some kind of outward performance or appearance. No, he's looking at what's on the inside. Circumcision is inherently an outward action. It's an outward mark designating God's people in the Old Testament. But throughout all of Scripture, we we see that God isn't necessarily looking at our outward appearance, but our inward condition. He's not as concerned about the physical action, right, as much as the meaning behind it, what it symbolizes, the spiritual reality that it points to. And this is what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 2. Take a look at it with me. Romans 2, verses 28 through 29. He's talking about circumcision here and and, and how it relates to Judaism. And Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul says God is more concerned about the circumcision of your heart that your hearts would be marked off for him more than anything else. He is much more concerned about what's inside than whatever appears on the outside. This reminds me of a show that I used to watch when I was in high school where they would, um, they would take these old junk cars and they would renovate them. And these, like I said, were just junkers. These were rust buckets. They were so bad that they probably wouldn't pass the inspection here in PA because they were just that broken down. And they would take these junk cars and they would turn them and transform them into these crazy, flashy cars that looked amazing and phenomenal. Right, And it was more than just a paint job. It was more than just a good paint job. They, they would actually install these crazy things inside of these cars to really soup them up. They'd put like movie theaters, screens, and like popcorn machines in the trunk of the car. Those were the type of things that they would in, install. And the car was always owned by like a teenage guy, right? And so you could imagine their reaction when they do the grand reveal, They're just like jumping up and down. They're screaming about how awesome it is. They're talking about how many ladies they're going to be able to pick up with this new ride because that's all they care about, right? Is is this flashy car that's going to make me look really, really good. However, while they looked fantastic on the outside, there was a problem. And that these garages would only take care of these cars cosmetically. They never even touched the mechanics of the car. And what the show didn't want you to know is that these teenagers would take these amazing looking cars back home and then they would break down in a matter of months because the inside mechanics were junk. You brought a junk car in, we souped it up, made it look good, and guess what? You're going home with a junk car because there's nothing good. There's nothing good on the inside. In the same way, we can look really good on the outside to everyone surrounding us, but God knows the heart. God knows the heart. He's looking under the hood and he recognizes our heart. 
that it's in a broken condition. And so in order to fix that, he gives us the Holy Spirit, which is what happened to the Gentiles, according to Peter. Peter in verse 8 says that God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. He, he saw their faith. He saw their trust and bore witness to them. How? By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, Peter says. When Peter talks about that, that they received the Holy Spirit, just like he did to us, he's referring back to Acts chapter 2. It's what we call Pentecost, where the Jewish people, specifically the apostles in this moment, were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter gets up and preaches the gospel to the masses, to whoever would listen. And at the end of the sermon, it says that the people listening were cut to the heart. There was like this deep emotional moment. They were deeply moved and they were actually concerned saying, wait a minute, if what Peter says about this Jesus guy is true, what does that mean for me? Peter, what do we have to do? They asked him that. What do we have to do? We're cut to the heart. We're moved. What do we have to do? Do do, do, do I have to start praying more? Do I have to attend the temple gatherings more? What must I do to obtain such salvation? And take a look at what Peter says in Acts 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. I don't have to do anything. Just turn to Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't miss this part. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is a promise. You see, the mark of our salvation, the evidence that we are in Christ, that we are in God's community, is not any outward appearance like circumcision or like church attendance or like a certain prayer life or, or like how good of a person I am. None of those are the mark of our salvation. No, the mark of our salvation is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us a Christian. In a simple sense, conversion is being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It's at one moment I didn't have the Holy Spirit, and now I do have the Holy Spirit. It's being brought from death to life. It's out with the old. It's in with the new. It's out with my old nature, in with my new nature, taking taking your old nature, taking your old heart, and replacing it with a new nature and a new heart. I want want every single person in this room to know that Christianity is not some sort of self-help program. Right? It's conversion is not that I I was a bad person and now I've cleaned myself up. I've, I've, I've turned my life around and now I'm a good person. No, Christianity says I was a dead person and now I'm alive. I was dead and now I'm alive. And what brings you to life? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you need to be cleaned up. Of course you need to be cleaned up. But you are powerless to clean yourself up. 
We are incapable of purifying ourselves. We are incapable of being good people because of our wretched sin. We need the living Holy Spirit, which is a gift from God for those who repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. It's a gift for those who say, Jesus, I was wrong, and now I submit to you. Have your way with me. Listen to what God says about all of this and the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in Ezekiel, through the prophet Ezekiel. This is what God says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what happens when someone becomes a believer and follows Jesus. The Israelites had an external physical surgery in circumcision. As believers, we have an internal spiritual surgery by the hand of the Spirit. In Christ, we've been given a new heart. The old just won't do. It's too dirty. You can't just clean it up. It's impossible. That's why our focus needs to not be, I need to be a better person. No, it's not, I need to be a better person. It's, I need to be a new person. I need to be something else altogether. And that only comes in the form of the Holy Spirit. And so to bring us back to the case, to the, the trial here in Acts 15, exhibit A, God's activity. Peter says, hey, look, 10 years ago, when I preached to the Gentiles, when I preached to the uncircumcised, God who knows their hearts, who saw their faith, who, who believed, gave them the Holy Spirit in the same way he did for us. He made no distinction between us and them. They received the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit cleansed their hearts. Peter's case says that if these Gentiles were not genuinely converted, if they genuinely had not received salvation, they would not have received the Holy Spirit like us. God would not have acted the way he did if they were not truly saved. God gave them the Spirit without any conditions, without any circumcision being done. God accepted the Gentiles just as they were. That's the theological case that Peter makes to the whole assembly. He's speaking to the whole crowd that they don't need to be circumcised to receive salvation based on God's activity. But then in a significant moment in verse 10, he turns to the accusers. He shifts his attention to those who are teaching false things. And he asks an extremely powerful question. Why are you putting God to the test? Why are you putting God to the test? Peter claims that just by suggesting that there's conditions put on salvation, that you are challenging God's will that you are challenging God's activity and that you are hindering his purpose. And if you insist on something that challenges or tests God, 
This will provoke anger. This will provoke judgment. This is how serious this is. And asking the question, Peter says, hey, don't put God to the test because it's only going to make him angry. You remember the last time somebody put God to the test in the book of Acts? It was Ananias and Sapphira. And they dropped dead because of it. This is how serious it is to go against the will and the activity of God. Peter says this is what God did. And it would serve you very well not to teach things that go against his activity. Peter goes on to explain that they are testing God by placing a yoke on the neck of the Gentiles that not even the Israelites could bear. A yoke is a harness or a restraint used in farming that they would put on livestock that would allow the livestock to pull heavy loads. And Peter is saying, hey, two things. One, that yoke, that load is too heavy for them. They can't pull that burden. And two, why would you expect them to wear that yoke that not even we as Israelites could wear? You're placing expectations on them that we couldn't live up to. Jesus he used the image of the yoke in his teaching and would actually um, invite the weary and the burdened to take his yoke because his yoke was easy and his yoke is his burden, is light. Jesus is saying, look, I came to fulfill the law of Moses. I took that yoke. I took that burden because you couldn't. And so Peter once again says, why on earth would we put a burden on people in salvation that not even God himself has placed on them, that not even God himself has placed on us? Why on earth would we give the unbeliever a burden that Jesus has already carried on our behalf? And so there's a couple points of application here for us today in this passage. One's for the believer in the room and one's for the unbeliever in the room. One's in verse 10 and one's in verse 11. Verse 10 is for the believers in the room. This is the application. We as believers, when we evangelize, when we tell people about Jesus, we must present a crystal clear presentation of the gospel of grace and nothing more. Unfortunately, many of us present a muddy, or even worse, a poisonous gospel. Sometimes we impose a yoke on the believer that Jesus never requires for them to be saved, for them to come to him. We share the gospel with conditions, with strings attached, and that's wrong. This is what it typically looks like. Sometimes we say, oh, come to Jesus, but... Come to Jesus, but you better clean up some of that muck on your heart before you come to him. Come to Jesus, but you, you got to do all of these things. No, it should be come to Jesus, period. Nothing more, nothing less. And we have to remember that it is not our responsibility in evangelism when we tell people about Jesus to clean somebody up. Because remember, we are incapable of cleaning ourselves up. So what makes us think that we're going to do a good job cleaning anybody else up? No, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. And frankly, we need to stop trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit. 
No, our responsibility is merely to tell people about the wonderful saving grace of Jesus Christ and then to let the Spirit do His thing. If you are an unbeliever in this room, if you, if you are saying, hey, I'm not so sure about this Jesus thing. I, this has been rammed down my throat my entire life, and I'm not quite there yet, Mike. If you are one of those people in this room, I want to apologize on behalf of all of the believers that have ever communicated to you that you have to be something or do something to earn salvation. That you had to be good enough to earn God's favor. Jesus earned God's favor on your behalf. And now he offers his favor to you, not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you are, but because he is gracious. Which brings us to the final verse, verse 11, and the application for the unbeliever in this room, if that's you. Peter finishes by saying, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. If you are an unbeliever in this room, I am here to tell you that you do not need to do anything or be anyone to receive salvation. Jesus invites you to come as you are. I don't care what you've done this past week. Perhaps you've walked in this morning as a drug addict for all I care. Perhaps this very morning you've stumbled in drunk or hung over from last night and it wouldn't make a difference. If that's you, it's important for you to know that even in such condition, salvation is available to you through the grace of Jesus. Come to Jesus as you are. Keep your addictions. Keep your lifestyle. Keep all of those things and bring them with you to Jesus. And then throw them down to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior? Would you help me? Can I take on your yoke? Can I take on your burden? Throw them at the foot of the cross. And then Jesus will save you when you trust in him for your salvation. He will save you and he will give you his Holy Spirit, which is a promise And that spirit, the Holy Spirit, will bring you to life everlasting and transform you and cleanse you, save you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have called us to come as we are, Lord, because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that if there were any conditions for salvation, if you required anything out of us, Father, we would fail miserably. If you asked us to meet you halfway, Father, we would be stuck in our sin. So we thank you and we praise you that your son Jesus came 100% of the way and he met us right where we are. And I thank you, Father, that you love us so much that you will meet us where we are, but you refuse to let us stay there. I thank you, Father, that while I don't have to give up anything to receive salvation, Father, you recognize that those things lead to death and you help us clean those things up by the power of your spirit. So Lord, I would ask this morning that if there would be anybody in this room who has yet to trust and repent towards Jesus, that this moment would be it. 
that in their own way they would cry out to you and say, Father, would you forgive me? I trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us even when we didn't deserve it. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.